1: Heavenly Father, we come before You and call upon You this morning, because truly all the fullness of wisdom and light is found in You. Lord, would You mercifully illuminate Your Word this morning by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Give us true understanding. Give us the grace to receive Your Word in true fear and humility. Father, we ask that that we would be taught this morning by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor only you as we ought, that we may glorify your name in everything that we do and edify one another by our good example, giving to you, Father, the love and obedience which you so deserve Lord, you have graciously received us among the number of your saints this morning, and for that we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, grab your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Philippians, the third chapter. Now, if you've been following in our series in Philippians, you know Kind of what we've been seeing. You know what Paul has been doing in this letter. He's been laying out for us what it looks like to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both as individuals and as a church body. We've seen exactly what a a life lived in light of the gospel looks like. We've seen that the call of Christ is not... Only a call to salvation sometime in the future, but a call to transformation now. We've seen that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just change our eternal destiny, but it changes the very way we see the world and it changes the way that we live our lives. No one can claim Jesus as their Savior unless they also claim Him as Lord. We've seen that. Paul showed us in Philippians 2 how a life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ will lead to unity in the church through the means of radical selflessness of its members. And then Paul gave us four examples. He showed us this Christ-like, self-sacrificial mindset first in Christ Jesus Himself, and He exhorted us to have this mindset amongst ourselves. He showed us this mindset in himself as he laid out his life as a sacrifice on the offering of the Philippians' faith. He showed us this example in Timothy, who also gave his life in service of the gospel. And lastly, he displayed this mindset in one of the the Philippians' own members, Epaphroditus, who nearly died in service to the gospel. Paul's been laying out what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he's been showing us what it looks like to have this radically others-oriented mindset that Christ had. But in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul moves in a slightly different direction. So so let's look to our text. Let's read it this morning. And then we'll, we'll dig into it more in depth. So grab your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. The third chapter, we're going to start in verse 1. And we're just going to be looking at the first three verses this morning. Look with me at God's inspired and inerrant word. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is, is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, when I was looking at the text for this week, I must confess, I started out to prepare the sermon I was planning on preaching 1 through 16. And then as I looked at the text, I thought, I can't do it. I just, I can't do it. I won't have enough time. So I shortened it down to 1 through 12. And then as I looked at the text more in depth, I thought, I can't do it. I won't have enough time. So I shortened it down to 1 through 6. And as I looked at the text, I thought, I can't do it. I won't have enough time. So here we are in verses 1 through 3. I know, I need help. I need help. Uh, but but <laughs> I'm glad to be a part of a fellowship of believers who loves to just dig into God's Word in depth. Um, amen. amen. So the basic breakdown here this morning. Paul's, Paul's doing this. Now, this whole section is really one sustained thought, which is why I wanted to deal with it all together, but we're going to kind of take it in a couple chunks. But, but the basic thrust of what Paul's doing here ties into what he's been doing in the rest of the letter. First, he gives us a command to rejoice, and we'll look at that. And then he goes on in really the next 15 verses to explore the difference between what it looks like to have confidence in the flesh and confidence in Christ. The, these, two, these two things are polar opposites, and he's going to show us that. So we're going to begin to look at that this morning, and then we'll continue looking at that next week. But let's look at the first verse here. Because again, this ties into, this isn't just a a transitionary verse. This is important to where Paul's going. And the first thing I want you to see in our text this morning, found in verse 1, is this. The Christian must find their joy in the Lord. The Christian must find their joy in the Lord. In other words, the realm in which we rejoice as believers in Christ is in God. Look at verse 1. He says, finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but this is extremely important. This is not a a suggestion. Paul's not saying, well, if you can find your joy in the Lord, that'd be great. Um, It's not a hope. I hope you can find your joy in the Lord. Paul gives a command. You are to rejoice in the Lord. You must. You must rejoice in the Lord. Now, that sounds a little strange to our ears. Maybe. Well, why? Well, because we often think of joy as not really something you choose. Maybe we think of it as an emotion. It's something that just happens or it doesn't happen. But obviously, Paul's command here tells us something differently. Paul tells us let the Lord be the source of your joy. Find your joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And, And And notice what he says next. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. You see, this isn't the first time that Paul has mentioned joy or rejoicing in his letter to the Philippians. In fact, Paul mentions the word joy five times in Philippians and the verb form rejoice eight times. Rejoicing is a key theme in the letter to the Philippians. He keeps going back to it, back to it, back to it, circling back. And we'll really dig into that later in chapter 4 where he says the famous rejoice again, I say rejoice. Saying even just once is not enough. He's going to keep hitting on this theme. Well, why? He says it's no trouble to me. In other words, he's saying I don't hesitate to repeat myself on this theme. I'm doing this on purpose. He said, He's saying I'm not reluctant to repeat myself to tell you rejoice, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Well, why? The question is, why does Paul harp on joy in Philippians? Well, he tells us here, it's safe for us. It is safe for you. That's what he says here in this verse. To command us and remind us repetitively to rejoice in the Lord is safe. It's safe for us. What in the world does that mean? Well, the word Paul uses here that's translated safe... It contains this idea of being fastened, of something being stable. It contains this idea of certainty, something being certain. It's a word that they would use when a prisoner was fastened into their stocks. They're safe. They can't get out. They're not going anywhere. It's a word that conveys that feeling when you're strapping a big couch to the back of your pickup truck. You get all the tie downs just right. You get them nice and snug, and you give it a tap, and you say, That's not going anywhere. I knew he would know that. Every dad does that. Every dad goes, That's not going anywhere. That's the picture that this word conveys. Those who rejoice in the Lord are safe. In other words, they're not going anywhere, they have a firm hope, a firm joy. The couch is strapped in. It's safe. It's stable. It's fastened tightly. It's not going anywhere. The person whose joy is in the Lord has their joy fastened tightly to a firm anchor. They are strapped in, if you will, to the ultimate source of joy. Their joy is immovable because God is unchanging. See, to rejoice in the Lord is safe in that sense. It's secure. To find one's identity, one's joy, one's security in God is, is, it's like a ship in a safe harbor. The storm comes, the waves may toss, but the ship is not going anywhere. It's firmly anchored. And this is the picture that Hebrews 6.19 speaks of as it says that, that our hope in Christ is as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. You must rejoice in the Lord. He must be the source of your joy and the realm in which you rejoice. You see, you must not sink the anchor of your joy in your circumstances. Because circumstances change. They will change. You must not sink the anchor of your joy in people because people will disappoint you. People will betray you. People will fail you. You must not... Sink the anchor of joy in your possessions because they won't last. They won't fulfill you. You must not sink the anchor of your joy in yourself because you too will fall short and will fail yourself time and time again. No, Paul says here, Christian, sink your anchor of joy in Christ, and Christ alone. Rejoice in the Lord. Do this and your joy will be safe, secure, immovable Because God is immovable and God is unchanging. But what might tempt us away from doing that? What are some of the things that tempt us away from rejoicing in the Lord? Another way you could ask the question is, what is the opposite of rejoicing in the Lord? And Paul's answer in this text is confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh is is at odds with rejoicing in the Lord. And that's where he turns next. And the rest of this whole section, again, which we're going to deal partly with this morning and partly with next week, is all about confidence in the flesh. And Paul's main point is this. Confidence in the flesh is foolish. It's worthless. It's pointless. Confidence in the flesh, in other words, in yourself, in your abilities, before God, disables you from rejoicing in God. Now, to speak of this, Paul commands the Philippians to be on the lookout for a specific group of false teachers that were peddling this confidence in the flesh. We call them the Judaizers. Uh, this, this group of false teachers, basically what they did was followed Paul around to the churches that he planted and infiltrated them after he left. This group of false teachers identified themselves as believers in Christ. They called themselves Christians. They preached the gospel, so to speak. But there was a problem with the gospel that they preached. You see, they taught that Gentile Christians, so non-Jews, who believed in Christ, must now come under observance of the entire Mosaic law. The men had to be circumcised. Otherwise, they could not be a part of the Christian community. And I mean, at first glance, that doesn't sound like that big of a difference. Okay, so they were Jews and wanted other people to follow Jewish laws. I mean, those are God's laws. Like, what's? I mean, okay, maybe there's something wrong with that, but what's the big deal? But look, look how seriously Paul takes this teaching. Look at the language he uses in verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And the first thing I want you to notice is this, this word, look out. Or another way you could say it is, "Beware. Be on the guard, be on your guard, for. Keep an eye out for this group of people that's coming. Paul commands the Philippians here to be alert and watchful for false teachers who will most assuredly try to infiltrate the church with their false doctrine. They had done the same thing at Galatia. In that letter, we find Paul's most strong. Language. You see, the question for Paul was not if the false teachers would come to Philippi and try to corrupt the church, but when. He knew they would come. Why? Well, because they always came. And, and we need to understand this today. You need to hear this because I think we don't take this very seriously sometimes. There is a cosmic war going on in the spiritual realms. Satan hates the church and is doing everything he can to oppose the church, but he's not a fool. He knows that if he just parades people by that don't look anything like us and teach nothing the same, it's not very tempting for us. But what Satan does, what Paul teaches us, is that he infiltrates the church with people claiming to be Christians. Now, in the end, there's no contest between Christ and Satan. We know Christ wins. But we are to be on the lookout for false teaching Every single church that Paul writes to in the New Testament is dealing with false teachers in the midst of the congregation. Every single one. It's a constant threat to Christ's church. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is getting ready to leave the church in Ephesus. He's been there for a couple years. He's been teaching them. And as he prepares to leave, knowing he will never return again, he addresses the elders of the church And I want you to hear the language he uses. One of the parts of his address, listen to what he says. And think about this part of Philippians. He says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 31. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Listen to what he says. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. Not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Look out, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He says, I know that as soon as I leave, men will arise even from among you speaking twisted things, trying to draw away. The disciples, this is how Satan works. See, Paul knew that false teachers would attempt to infiltrate the flock, even from within. And so he exhorted the Ephesian church to be on their guard. To constantly check their teaching back to the Word of God. To constantly examine everything that is taught to the Word of God. You see, Paul was realistic about this threat in the churches that he planted, And we would be foolish to think that we are immune here in the 21st century. There's one other place that I want to show you. He addresses this issue many more times. But in 2 Corinthians 11, he again, just listen to the language that Paul uses when addressing this. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13, he says this about these teachers that had infiltrated the Corinthian church. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So these teachers are coming saying, we are apostles of Christ. And look what Paul says, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So what Paul's showing us here is that false teachers don't just walk up to the church and have a, a big sign that says, I am a false teacher. Who wants to follow me? It says they appear as servants of righteousness. They appear as angels of light, as apostles of Christ. They come under the name of Christ. Hey, we're Christians. These people here were claiming to be apostles. They were claiming to be doing the work of God. They were claiming to be teaching the teachings of Christ. But they were false they, Paul says they were servants of Satan sent to infiltrate the church. They were teaching error and leading people away from Christ. And that is what Paul is worried about here in Philippi. That is why he commands them to be on the lookout for false teaching. Keep your eyes and ears open. And the same is true for us. We need to be on our guard for false teaching. We as a church need to be on our guard for false teaching. Well, There's a lot of different ways that this comes about in our day and age, but I wanted to give you one example from my own life. About seven or eight years ago, I was leading worship and helping teach a large college group at my home church that I grew up in. And we met on Tuesday nights. Uh, So Tuesday nights, we met in kind of a building about this size. There was probably about an average of 50 to 60 people, so a little bit more than this of like college, young adult age. And there was like a core group of people, but we got a lot of visitors that kind of cycled in and out, so you didn't always know everyone. Uh, As you kind of get a picture for that. And the way that the room was set up was uh, kind of like 208, where we had circular tables. There's probably about eight people at every table. And the way that it would work is we'd have a time of worship, there'd be some preaching, and then we'd usually, at our tables, have a discussion on the teaching. Okay, so kind of get that picture in your head. That's how it would go. Um... So one Tuesday night, these two young men came to visit for the first time. And they, I mean, they looked just like every other guy. There was nothing unique about them. Um, they looked normal. They were really nice. They had their Bibles. They just came to the to the college group and just wanted to hang out. Um, so we talked to them, and after group was over, they left. Well, the next week they came back, and the next, and at this point, the the pastor and I started to kind of notice, we just kind of got like a strange vibe from them. We couldn't pinpoint it, um, but they kind of seemed to be avoiding the leaders. They they seemed to kind of be avoiding him and avoiding me and some of the other uh, people who were in leadership. Not like obviously, but just kind of subtly. And we also noticed that when they would come in, they would sit down. Now, you would think of two friends came to a group like that, and they didn't know anyone else, that they would usually sit together, right? I mean, that would make sense. Every time they came, they would split up and sit at different tables. And so we just thought, this is strange. And then after talking to some people, we found out that they were inviting people to hang out after, to get coffee. Now, again, that in and of itself is not necessarily strange. Young people, yeah, sure, they're trying to get to know people. But it was kind of just all these little things were starting to, little red flags were popping up, and uh, when you would ask them questions, they would, they were kind of elusive. Again, they were very nice, but they started to be a little bit elusive, and then we found out that they were inviting people to a Bible study that they had at a house uh, that met on a different night. Um, but again, when you asked them questions about it, they wouldn't really answer and go, "Oh, just come and find, just come and find out," you know. That's always a red flag, by the way. And we noticed also that the people that they seemed to be inviting, again, were none of the leaders. It was always people who were a little bit younger and immature in their faith. And it was starting to look really shady. And so we, we, we knew something was going on, but we, we couldn't pinpoint it. Um, and again, these guys, I, I, I want you to know, they, they, were, they were claiming the name of Christ. They had their Bibles. Oh, we're Christians. We love Jesus. We just have this Bible study we do. Um, and they were inviting people kind of individually. They would get them alone and then invite them. Um, and I, I don't remember how we found out kind of what their their purpose was, but eventually we were able to find out that they were part of a cult uh, known as the Church of God World Mission Society. Um, and, and, you know, I don't even go into all of what they teach, but essentially they teach that a Korean man uh, is like the reincarnation of Jesus and that he is God in the flesh. And there's a woman um, who's the mother of God. And both of these leaders are literally God in the flesh and they worship them and it's, it's all this crazy stuff. Complete, just false teaching. I mean, it's a, it's a cult, a heretical cult. But they had tried to infiltrate our church. Again, they didn't just walk in saying, hey, we're part of this cult. And, uh, you know, if you like to worship Korean people, then you should come join us, you know. Because then everyone would just go, okay, yeah, bye. No, but they, they were subtle. They crept in slowly. And, and, that's, and that's what false teachers do. They don't just tell you that they're false teachers. You wouldn't be tempted by it. And obviously, we eventually just confronted them. As soon as we found that out, we confronted them and just said, you are not welcome here anymore. We said, you can talk with us. We'll get coffee with you, but you are not to talk to our people or to come back. And I mean, they left nicely um, and kind of everything was avoided. But it was, it was scary. There are people who are seeking to infiltrate the true church. And it's not always that obvious. I mean, worshiping a human is pretty obvious Error, but the error is not always that obvious. Look at the teachers here in Philippi. All they were doing was saying, "Hey, you should be circumcised too if you want to be saved." On the surface, that seems a lot less obvious than worshiping a human. But false teachers are constantly trying to deceive every one of us. They they go to church. They are literally knocking on your door and walking the streets of your neighborhood. They are coming into your house through your radio. Through your television, wearing nice suits with big, beautiful smiles and encouraging words of health and wealth. That's how they operate. They're coming to you sometimes even in books sold in Christian bookstores, which is really embarrassing. But it's all in the name of Christ. Again, they operate in the name of Christ, but it's false. False teachers. There's a helpful movie out that exposes some of this. I don't know if some of you have seen it. It's called American Gospel. It just came out, it's really well done. It's on Amazon Prime, so you can rent it for like five bucks. I would encourage you, just rent it, watch it. It is excellent. Um, It's just so helpful in exposing kind of some of the false gospels that are out there these days. But the point is, the church must be on the lookout always for false teaching and for false teachers. And it's not just the elders and pastors' job. It's the congregation's job. I mean, what if the elders started teaching something wrong? Who's going to do anything about it? The congregation. The congregation has the, guard, the, the mission to watch out for false teaching. It's a corporate body-wide task. You are to sit there with your Bibles open to make sure that everything we say comes from in here. That is what a church member is to do. And that, again, exposes how, how will we recognize this false teaching? Because it sounds kind of alarmist. Well, how will we recognize it? Well, that's That's simple. By the word of God. Anytime someone comes in teaching something that is contrary to the word of God, God, that's a red flag. And I'm not talking about little disagreements that we would have on like eschatology or something. I'm talking about another Christ, another gospel. Th- this is why it's so important that you have an intimate knowledge of the word of God. I-, I mean, think about it. Who is more vulnerable to be deceived by a false teacher? Someone who knows their Bible well or someone who goes, oh yeah, like, they preach that on Sunday, but I don't really read it. You are vulnerable. You are vulnerable. How will you recognize that the teaching is false if you don't know what teaching is true? If you are firmly rooted and established in God's word, then when false teachers come, you can see right through them. Even if you don't know exactly what's wrong, you can see right through them. You see, you see being firmly rooted and established in scripture gives you like a spiritual spidey sense. If you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it does. It does. It does. You'll, sometimes you will meet people or someone will come knocking at your door. And, and you might not be able to argue with them. Maybe they're a better debater or whatever. But you'll just know this is not, this is not right. This is not right. You need to pray for God for that discernment. Know your Bibles well. And again, I, I want to encourage you. Test everything that comes from this pulpit. Test everything that comes from room 208 and anyone here by the word of God. And all your leaders would affirm that. That The Bereans in Acts 17 compared even what Apostle Paul told them to the Scripture. And Paul calls them noble because they examined the word of God. And we must be the same. We must be on the lookout. Why? The answer is because the gospel is at stake. Look at verse 2. Paul calls these teachers dogs, evildoers mutilators of the flesh. Now, in Greek, it has kind of a cool alliteration. So if you wanted to translate that in English, you could do it like uh, mutts, malefactors, and mutilators. But the point is, it's very, very strong language. These are insults. This is offensive language that Paul is using. Now, these teachers were Jewish. And the only difference in their gospel was that they taught that Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be saved. In order to be saved, you had to be circumcised and follow the Mosaic law. That's that's all they were adding. That's, That's the only thing they added was stuff from Scripture. And Paul levels this offensive language directly at them. He calls these Jews dogs. Essentially, that's like the worst insult you could give a Jew. Because the Jews called the Gentiles dogs. He's essentially saying, you're not really Jewish. You're like a Gentile dog. That is offensive. He's calling them scum. They're impure, which is ironic, because they're the ones that are teaching adherence to the Mosaic law. Paul says, you're worse than Gentiles. This is offensive. Paul calls them evildoers. Workers of evil, workers of sin, they are literally sowing evil among God's people. These teachers who were claiming to teach the law of God were literally working evil amongst God's people. Paul calls them mutilators, or, or literally in Greek, it's just the mutilation, which is a great band name, by the way. But this is the most radical insult, Paul, a through and through Jewish man, says that to teach circumcision is akin to pagan flesh mutilation. Th- these Judaizers were teaching God's law, they were just simply making Gentiles adhere to the Old Testament ceremonies. And Paul says, You are ungodly pagan flesh mutilators. There, there is nothing more offensive to a first century Jew than insulting circumcision. Circumcision was, was the mark of Judaism. It, it was so important to Jewish culture. Now now listen to this. Circumcision was so important to Jewish culture that in the first century, when the Greeks ruled, ruled over the Jews, so right before the time of Jesus... One of the Greek rulers had outlawed circumcision and said, if you circumcise your son, you will be executed and your son will be executed as well. Jewish mothers would go out into the streets, circumcise their babies and then be executed with their kids. They would willingly do it because that is how high they held circumcision. Paul says, now you teach circumcision, you are mutilators of the flesh. You are worse than Gentile dogs. This This is insane. Paul says, they're working evil. Why? Because Paul says, you do not add anything to the work of Christ. Paul says, if you add anything to the work of Christ, you are a false teacher. In Galatians, of these very same Judaizers, Paul says, I wish they would go further and emasculate themselves. He hated these false teachers. Again, all they were doing... Was teaching that Gentiles had to adhere to all the Mosaic ceremonies. Paul says, if you add anything to the gospel of Christ, Christ is of no value to you. You've forsaken everything and you are under the curse of the law. This is is radical. But Paul says, no, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not adherence to any law, even biblical law. That is what Christ has done. That's the offense of the gospel to Jews. Remember in in 1 Corinthians when Paul says the gospel is an offense and a stumbling stone. The cross is to Jews. That's why. Because it takes everything that they held dear and says, we don't need that anymore. It's all about Christ. These these teachers couldn't let go. They wanted both. They wanted Christ. They were claiming Christ. But they wanted to keep all of their, their ceremonies as well and impose them on everyone else. Paul says, you've done that, you've trampled the blood of Christ. That's how important it is. The very gospel is at stake. Look at what he says in verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That is radical. He says, these people are teaching circumcision, but we are the circumcision. We don't need physical circumcision anymore because we already possess all of the blessings of God in Christ. The entire Old Testament law was fulfilled in Christ. We worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus. We possess all the fullness of everything that the Old Testament law was pointing to. We don't need priests and temples and animals and sacrifices and circumcision. Because Christ has fulfilled all of it. Salvation is by faith alone. We Glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, we boast in Christ Jesus. We put all of our confidence, all of our hope for salvation in Christ. And we place no confidence in the flesh, in any ceremony, in any ritual, in any addition to the gospel. In other words, we, we, we don't look to any physical marks or obedience to the law for salvation. We don't look to any of this for assurance before God. We look to one thing for salvation, one place, one person. We look to Jesus Christ alone. We, we glory in Jesus Christ, Paul says, and nothing else. You see, the glory alone in Christ was offensive to the Jews. Paul says, I don't care. We glory in Christ. We are the circumcision because of Christ. We place no confidence in ourselves no confidence in our own works or abilities no confidence in our obedience even for salvation but only in the obedience of Christ this is what paul's getting at here by adding anything even the smallest thing to the gospel you destroy and pervert the gospel paul puts it this way in romans 3:28 he says for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law That's the beauty of the gospel. That that is what every other religion gets wrong. That's what Roman Catholicism gets wrong. That's what Mormonism gets wrong. They try to add our works into the gospel and cram it in there, but it doesn't work because that's not the gospel that the apostles preach and it's not the gospel that's found in the New Testament. All of us were dead in trespasses and sins, but God in His mercy sent His Son to live a perfect life on our behalf, to die the death that we deserved, death on a cross. Not so that we could then add our work to it. No. On the cross, Jesus Christ bore the full wrath of God for His people, purchasing them with His blood. And three days later, He rose from the dead forever, signifying and solidifying the truth of the gospel message forever defeating Satan, sin, and death, and now reigning at the right hand of God, interceding for His people. And maybe you're here this morning and you, your confidence is in yourself. Maybe you're, you're trusting in your own good works. Or maybe your, your confidence is in, I don't know what, but not Christ. Well, I would implore you this morning, turn from that. The Bible calls those dead works. The Bible says that any, anything you're hoping in outside of Christ, any good work is like filthy rags before God because they're all tainted with our sin. We know that if we're honest. But the gospel is this, turn to faith in Christ and He will receive you. So would you do that this morning if you don't know Him? Believe in Him through faith and you will be forgiven and saved, not through your work, but through His. It's that simple. It's that simple. Cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ. Repent and believe the good news. That that is the message that we glory in. That is the spirit by which we worship. We glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in our flesh. We don't add anything to the work of Christ. Not our own work, not someone else's work, no ceremonies, nothing. Nothing. Brothers and sisters, salvation has come to us by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, alone. So this morning, would you glory in Christ with me? Rejoice in the Lord with me and beware and be on the lookout lest anyone comes trying to steal our joy in the Lord by adding to the gospel. For we are a circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, in our works, in anything but Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are so good. Sometimes, even even preaching the gospel, I'm thinking in my own head, can it really be that good? Can God be that merciful? And I quickly answer myself with yes. You are so good to us, Father, that even while we were enemies, you pursued us with your grace. Father, I pray that in our hearts, in any area of our, areas of our life where we are not putting our confidence in you, would you expose that? Father, expose that. And give us the faith to put our full confidence in Christ. Give us the the eyes to see how worthless our work really is before your throne outside of Christ. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Father, we worship you this morning in the name of Jesus, who purchased our salvation. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at faith at orangevilla.org.